Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. We know the world is getting hotter, records are being broken, and our climate is changing. But there is a twist to all this. We are actually in the middle of an ice age. We know that in the past 40 million years or so, we're in what we geologists think of as an ice age. But within that ice age time period, there are major fluctuations in climate, right? Big climate changes. And uh, those are a result of several different things. But the main thing is the shape of Earth's orbit around the sun. Dr. Elizabeth Christensen will give us the cool facts. And think about all the satellites launched into space. A new one will be made from a renewable source. A satellite made out of wood is going to space. I sat down with the chief engineer of the WESA Woodset, Samily Newman, to learn all about this non-conventional satellite. Meteorologist Jessica Fernandez has the story. That's all next on Weather or Not. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Welcome back. I recently came across an article suggesting that we are in the middle of a long-term ice age. I found this fascinating considering the warming our planet is undergoing. I spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Thomas, assistant professor at the Department of Geology, University of Buffalo, New York. Before we get to the cold facts, you need to hear what she and her team do. So I'm a um, paleoclimatologist, so I, which means I study past climate and how it changed through time. And uh, I'm an assistant professor in the geology department at the University at Buffalo. And so my research team and I, my research team is mainly graduate students and undergraduates here at UB. Um, we go into the field in places like Greenland and Alaska and Baffin Island in Arctic Canada and collect sediments either from the bottoms of lakes or from the ocean bottom and um, and in these sediment archives, we look at uh, what we call proxies or um, these molecules that we use to, that actually is, basically they change their shape based on how climate has changed in the past. And so we can use, we can look at these actual compounds, these molecules that are preserved in the sediments to say something about how climate changed. So that, in a way, gives us an idea of uh, when ice ages happen or when we go into warmer periods. Uh, how, how does an ice age happen, for example? Yeah, that's a really uh, fun question. So we know um, that there's geologists, we meaning geologists, um, know that ice ages happen because of several different um, what we call forcing mechanisms. Um, we know if we look back in Earth's geological history, we know that there have been great ice ages often when, whenever there is um, a continent near one of the poles. 
So for example, 450 million years ago during the Ordovician period, uh, te plate tectonics had moved the continents around on the surface of the earth such that one of them was sitting near the South Pole, kind of where Antarctica is today. And uh, because that continent was sitting there and uh, got really cold in the winters and the dark winters, ice was able to build up and on that continent and that um, buildup of ice causes the earth to be brighter and reflect more energy back out to space. And as a result, uh, that cools earth's climate. And so we know uh, that that also has happened in uh, the fairly recent geologic history. And by recent, I mean the past 65 million years, Antarctica has actually moved uh, towards where it is today and several like ocean gateways opened up that allowed the Southern Ocean to circulate around Antarctica. And that sort of isolated it from the rest, from the rest of the climate system and allowed it to get really cold and allowed that big ice sheet to grow. And so ever since that happened in the past um, 40 million years or so, Earth has been in what we geologists think of as an ice age. And, and how many ice ages have there been? Do we know? Is there a record of that in, in, the, uh, in the geology? Um, I should know that answer, but I don't, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, is, that is not a problem because my, my, my whole focus was going to be, for example, now that we know more or less how an ice age happens, and, and we know that you know we have ice ages and we have warmer periods, and right now with all the talk about uh, the climate change and the earth getting warmer. And, and, and we do see that. We, we have the evidence that proves that. But now I, I've read an article that says that we are kind of still in the middle of an ice age. Is, is, this, uh, is this a fact? Yeah. So like I said, um, we know that in the past 40 million years or so, we're in what we geologists think of as an ice age. But within that ice age time period, there are major fluctuations in climate, right? Big climate changes. And uh, those are a result of several different things. But the main thing is the shape of Earth's orbit around the sun. Mm. And so if we, uh, and we actually um, can calculate that very precisely. And so we know how much energy um, is hitting the earth from the sun today. And we can calculate that back in time for millions of years. And we know that as the tilt of the earth changes through time, that causes more or less energy to hit the poles in the summers. And relatively cold summers, when there isn't a lot of energy hitting the poles, that allows ice to grow. And so, uh, and then when the, when the poles when the tilt of the earth sort of wobbles more towards the sun in the Northern hemisphere summer or the Southern hemisphere summer, that actually uh, can make summers warm enough that that ice will melt in the summer. And that causes this, this change in the size of the great continental ice sheets that grow on land. So um, here where I live in Buffalo, New York, 20,000 years ago, I would have been sitting under a mile of ice. Mm. Um, and that's simply because the, the Earth's orbit 
the exact the tilt of earth and and how hot the summers were changed through time between then when summers were colder to now when summers are warmer and um, so although we are sort of in this longer time period that we think of as an ice age we also know that there's a lot of variations between what what we also call glacial and interglacial periods when there's glacial periods there are really huge continental ice sheets and interglacial periods we still have ice on the planet we know there are two large continental scale ice sheets on the planet but uh climate is relatively warmer compared to these glacial periods now i know you probably can't um put a precise number on it or an amount of years, but do we know how long these interglacial periods can last? Yeah, we do. Um, so we have really great records of climate over the past several million years from uh, a bunch of different sediment and ice core records. Um, and so we actually know that there's about a 100,000 year periodicity between the glacial periods and the interglacial periods last anywhere from, um, the sort of average is about 10,000 years and there are some uh, really exceptional interglacial periods that lasted longer, like 20 to 30,000 years. Very interesting. Has there been anything that you've ever found when you go do your, um, your field work has there been anything that you've discovered that you have said, wow, this is one of the most interesting things that I have found in any, you know, uh, coarse sediments or in any of your research, anything that struck you as odd in the past climate of our earth? Wow, Phil, that's a hard question. You know, it's funny because I've given some time, even sometimes in, in my, in my field of work and, you know, we deal with a lot of tropical uh, weather, a lot of hurricanes, a lot of tropical storms. Yeah. And it's it's funny sometimes how obviously climate has a real big impact on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the scale of these systems. And for example, we know that Saharan dust, it usually kind of inhibits uh, tropical formation. Mm-hmm. And last year we had a huge event that was nicknamed Godzilla, this huge plume of Saharan dust. And yet mm-hmm. we ended up with a record setting year for hurricanes then you know we ran mm-hmm. out of names and had to use the Greek alphabet so sometimes mother nature throws you that curve like you go wow that was something completely unexpected yeah. so I, di- I, don't, I, I didn't know if maybe throughout your research you have ever, ever had one of those moments where you go wow that was not what I expected to find in this core sample yeah that thank you for the prompt um and the story. <laughs> that's pretty cool so um my student Allison Cluett and I just published a paper Um, last month, where we wanted to know, we were actually studying these these interglacial periods. um, And it's actually really hard to study interglacial periods in the Arctic, because these huge continental scale ice sheets grow, and they, they're bulldozers, right? They just completely wipe the landscape clean. And so we decided to go uh, into the ocean. um, And we worked on ocean sediments near Greenland to, and then looked at these molecules that are produced by plants living on land, but then they sort of get washed into the ocean and preserved in these interglacial sediments. And so we were using this marine sediment record and using, we were using terrestrial plant compounds preserved in these marine sediment records 
to study how temperature changed on Greenland, not just during this current interglacial warm period, but during the past six interglacial periods, counting back, you know, several hundred thousand years. And there's this one interglacial marine isotope stage 11, 400,000 years ago, that other people have studied elsewhere in the world, and they call it a super interglacial. And people think it was really hot. Huh. And that probably meant that um, much of the ice sheets melted and it caused um, really massive sea level rise. But when we looked at uh, this record of temperature for marine isotope stage 11 on Greenland, it turns out that it wasn't that hot. Huh. Um, and so that was a big surprise because all these other records had said that it was hot. And what's really interesting is our records of Greenland ice sheet melt suggests that the ice sheet was indeed quite a bit smaller back then, even though it wasn't really warm in the summers. And so we think actually the Greenland ice sheet melted just because that interglacial, it was an exceptionally long interglacial, about 25,000 years long, rather than an exceptionally hot interglacial. Very um, interesting. My, my last question is, so how much of an impact is our climate change that's happening now going to take, is it going to take a toll on, on this interglacial period that we're living in? Um, yes, absolutely. It already is. Um, we know that the shape of Earth's orbit, uh, we know the shape of Earth's orbit, and we know that uh, because of how that's changing, we should be getting less and less energy from the sun um, in, in our summers here in the Northern Hemisphere. And that means that ice sheets here should be starting to grow. Of course, this is a very long and slow process um, if it were to happen. But, uh, and, and we also know that our temperatures should be declining here in the Northern Hemisphere and globally um, because of the decrease in amount of energy we're getting from the sun. But instead, what we're seeing in all of our, um, you know, all of our weather stations and all of our proxy records that us geologists are measuring, we're seeing instead that global and regional temperatures by and large are rising. And that's, of course, because of the human release of greenhouse gases. Well, we should definitely take care of our planet. That's for sure. Yes, we should. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, take part in our humble little for, uh, podcast here. And I, 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 I am eternally grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Whether or not, we'll be right back. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station, Seven News. It's been a while since we've done our Seven Questions segment, and we couldn't think of a better topic to do it with than that of a wooden satellite. Welcome to Weather or Not. I'm meteorologist Jessica Fernandez, and with me today, I have Samuli Newman of Arctic Astronautics, the chief engineer of the WESA Woodset, which is the world's first wooden satellite going to space. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jessica. It's really nice to be here. Seven questions. One. 
All right, so let's jump right into it. Why choose wood as the primary material for a satellite versus traditional materials? So usually satellites are the main frame of satellites is aluminum. This is the most common material. Of course, there's also lots of titanium and steel being used, but aluminum is the most common material. Uh, but also on the surfaces of the satellites, you typically see uh, so regular PCB. So it's basically electronics on the outside of the satellite. And this, uh, so the structure there is actually like fiberglass or aluminum plates. And this is the part that we are replacing now with wood. So it's actually the outer shelling of the satellite is aluminum, uh, sorry, wood. And there's still like small, very lightweight aluminum structure inside because it's required by the rocket launch companies so that we can actually get our satellite into space. So that is, of course, the main question of, of like why why we want to use wood. So wood is actually a really nice material in, in many ways, and it has been used in aviation, the other branch of aerospace, for a very long time. So it has many nice things going for it. Uh, it's very lightweight compared to its its like strength. And also it has very interesting like thermal isolation properties and magnetic properties. Uh, so wood is actually like very interesting alternative for for many applications and it, it can also be compared to uh, like carbon composite materials which are widely used in aerospace industry uh, but in this case like it's uh, like easier to uh, carve and so forth to make in the parts that you need and also much safer alternative to carbon fiber composites so wood has one of the not so desirable properties of wood for use in uh, aerospace applications is the fact that this grain structure uh, causes like it to be weak in certain directions and strong in others. So this has been solved like 100 years ago uh, by making making like the grain structures overlap with each other like uh, 90 degrees, and this is called plywood. And so plywood has uh, very nice, it solves these mechanical problems of wood and of course it makes sense for us to use plywood as well. And the plywood we are using is uh, made from birch, here it's from Finnish birch and uh, it's made by UPM here in Finland. So it's their Visa plywood, which is their highest grade and like everything is made very sustainably. It's super superb quality plywood. So the base material of the plywood is just just like any old plywood. The difference here is that we are uh, first drying it completely to not have uh, moisture drip out from, from the plywood when we are in vacuum of space. And after like drying it completely, like bone dry, uh, then we CNC cut uh, like all these uh, features that we need to mount the satellite. And then we apply uh, this very thin coating of aluminum oxide to protect it from the space environment. So on the outside surface of the plywood, there's like 100 nanometer thick layer of aluminum oxide. And so like it's so thin that you can't see it, but it's enough to protect it from uh, the uh, nasty chemical properties of uh, near Earth space. Two. When and where will the satellite be sent out of? So the satellite will be launched uh, at the end of the year. Uh, by Rocket Lab from New Zealand. And so it's California best company and they're launching either from California or New Zealand. And in this case, we want to go to the SSO orbit to orbit through the Earth's poles and then Rocket Lab will launch us from New Zealand.
three. How long will it be in space for, and what will be done during that time? So the satellite is launched to uh, orbit around the Earth to altitude from 500 to 600 kilometers. And this means that the orbital lifetime of the spacecraft will be about 10 years. So it will be orbiting the Earth for about 10 years, at the end of which it will uh, drop down the atmosphere and burn up completely in altitude of like 50, uh, 50 kilometers. So nothing will be coming down to Earth. Uh, so, and in the meantime, of course, the satellite will probably not survive for the 10 years and the mission lifetime is about, about two years. And so we'll be like in, in the space first, when we are deployed from the uh, Rocket Lab rocket, uh, the satellite will open up its antenna and its camera, camera boom. So the satellite actually has a little uh, selfie stick basically popping out from the bottom. And it will be taking images of the satellite, uh, like a wooden panel. So we will be monitoring any changes of the satellite, uh, of the wood in space. And of course, we are also taking lots of measurements by the instruments we have on board, which are provided by the European Space Agency. So we have a small uh, laboratory on board the satellite to monitor the changes in the wood. And also then we can see and like have measurements of how the wood is behaving in space. Four. What parts make up the satellite? So the satellite is a class of satellites called CubeSat, which is a like format of small satellites, nanosatellites originating in California. And this is uh, with a WoodSat is a one unit CubeSat, meaning it's it's about 10, like four inches by four inches by four inches cube. And, and it weighs like uh, two pounds or two to three pounds, and in our case, two. And so this, like, if you make your satellite in the standard format, it's just much easier to get a rocket launch to space, and of course, much cheaper as well. So if you think about, like, CubeSat is basically a cube, which is full of electronics. And in our case, the electronics consist of, of course, like basic avionics, like it has power system, it has a computer inside, and also the aforementioned uh, laboratory instruments to measure the wood in space. And also in our case, it has two cameras on board. Uh, one of the cameras is inside the satellite and is looking at, at the earth, just taking nice pictures. And also it sees the internal wall of the satellite. And then we have this selfie stick camera, which is like 20 centimeters outside the satellite, a uh, bit less than one foot outside the satellite. Uh, looking at the external surface of the of the uh, wood panels, so uh, we can monitor changes both inside and outside the wood panels. Five. I know people are probably thinking, "What is flammable? How would this work in space?" That's actually a good question. Of course, like your first thought is that uh, space is vacuum, so there is no burning happening there. But actually, this is a small misconception since. In the near-Earth environment, there is still something called atomic oxygen, which is a like highly uh, reactive form of oxygen where there's only one atom and it's it's like super reactive. And so, if we just like put some some material in the space, uh, it will start actually burning, uh, like slowly but still burning. So this is why we are coating the satellite panels with this atomic. Uh, lay, atomic layer of aluminium, and this protects it very well, like completely from the uh, effects of atomic oxygen. 
so we will burn only at the end of the orbital lifetime when it uh, re returns to Earth. Six. What are the prospects and expectations of how this wood satellite will perform? So of course we will test everything here on ground, like we we have been doing in the process. We have been doing lots of tests on the wood material, and lots of like uh, we have been investigating lots of ways to protect it. And so we are at this point. We are as the satellite is almost done now. We are very confident in that the satellite or the wood and the satellite will survive in the space environment. And so we expect it to, of course, start. Uh, deteriorating, the wood, wood will probably start suffering from UV radiation, from the atomic oxygen, from lots of like different things. But with all the counter steps we are taking to protect the wood, we actually expect it to survive almost like a normal CubeSat. So, in the end, like we should have, uh, we should be able to bring wood as a one one more tool in the space engineer's toolbox to be like to be used as alternative for, to, for example, uh, these carbon composites, composite structures. Seven. If wood does work, what future plans are there? And what would this mean for science and future satellites? So this is actually something that has been uh, popping up every now and then, like already before. Like you have probably heard from the Japanese plan they announced last year to send a satellite in 2023 which will have also like some wooden structures on board. And so actually like wood is, has these interesting properties. And so it has been brought up before that it could be interesting, but uh, before like the engineers have looked at it and they have decided that the problems are too large uh, with the chemical composition and so forth. So that it's not worth it to go go investigate it further. But now we are demonstrating here that it is indeed possible to use wood in space and not only possible, but sometimes advantageous. And so there very well might be uh, different, like interesting uh, projects where uh, wood could be very nice structural material, for example, for highly uh, accurate magnetic measurements, uh, wood is one material that doesn't affect them. So it could be very, very useful for that application. Or for example, if we want to have satellites that like we are certain that we'll burn up in atmosphere on de-orbit. So it's very safe for, for like Earth. So this could be also very interesting application for using wood in space. So I like to think it's so that it, it gives a new tool for spacecraft designers that now, like whereas before you always had to go to the uh, carbon composites and so forth, which have all these nasty chemicals and it's not sustainable and so forth. But now you have this sort of easier to use uh, alternative, which can perform similarly or in some cases even better. And this is something that has been known for terrestrial use cases already like before. Uh, and so plywood has been used in lots of very challenging environments here on Earth, like for example, in cryogenic uh, use cases where you have to deal with extreme colds. Uh, wood is a superb material for those cases. And now we are sort of bringing wood as one, one more alternative uh, for the spacecraft designers. And also we are, of course, not only get like, we are of course investigating using wood in space, but we are also like generally researching different aspects of wood and taking like very diff interesting measurements of plywood 
in this like ultimate testing environment of outer space and so th we expect that these these results will also help down here in earth for uh to bring good as an interesting alternative for these high uh, highly challenging engineering environments all right we'll wrap it up here thank you so much for your time it was great talking to you thank you for having me it was a pleasure thanks jessica next week on whether or not there is a dead zone in the middle of the gulf of mexico where no marine life is found but now it appears a wood chip can help fight what is killing the waters these wood chip bioreactors enhance a natural process, a natural part of the nitrogen cycle, the conversion of nitrate to harmless, stable nitrogen gas. Plus, closer to the west coast of Florida, algae blooms are killing all sorts of marine life, decimating the fishing industry and all but wiping out tourism. We'll find out what red tide is all about. This is the worst bloom Tampa Bay has seen since the 1970s. The next issue of Whether or Not drops August 10th. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and of course live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.